This week, I've been lucky enough to speak with Hoda Ali, a human rights activist and a nurse who has been defending the rights of women and girls for over 15 years through working and campaigning to end female genital mutilation in the UK. Hoda comes from an interesting background. Throughout this podcast, we talk about her journey to the UK as a refugee and her work educating society, as Hoda believes education is very important for preventing FGM. Hoda Ali's message is an important one. Thank you for listening. I'm just going to ask you, like, start by saying, what is FGM? Um, FGM is, is short for female genital mutilation. And why are you passionate about campaigning? What is your backstory? Where were you born and where did you grow up? Um, so I was born in Somalia, which is the British colonized part, which is called Somaliland now. And, um, I'm passionate, before I go into the journey, why I'm here is that I'm passionate about because there's so much violence against women and girls around the world, no matter who you are, where you come from, what color you are, if you're rich or poor. Um, now I just... It was just so hard to know that we women, like every day, try at some point in our lives just trying to exist, just trying to, you know, exist in this world, which can't exist without us. Um, but for me, it was, I, I am a survivor of FGM. So when I was younger, I was caught um, in Hargeisa, which this was um, the second capital city in Somalia at that time. I was seven years old. I was caught with my younger sister. But what was crazy was that every single person that the whole country, basically, anyone I know, by the time any girl, by the time you're seven, you will ha- already have FGM or about to get ready to have FGM. That means I always thought that every single woman around the world was cut as well. And so I just thought it was something that was normal. FGM was just something that happens around the world. It's only that even though I got sick um, when I was younger, so I survived the initial cutting, which is, you know, the cutter comes in. FGM, by the way, there are four different types. So let me just quickly talk about the types, if that's okay. Oh, that's fine. That was one of um, my questions. What is type one? What is type two, type yeah. three, type four? So yeah. please. It, absolutely. Before I go into it, it's very important to actually know the types and to know terminology as well, because that's another thing that we really are missing in the UK, because the way our terminology actually is, the best way we can communicate with survivors so means what using whatever language they they understand or whatever uh, word they understand so fgm female genital mutilation there's four types type one is normally a cut or a slit of the clitoris they don't normally involve any stitches even though now we see women around the world that have type one but different way of cutting and then we have type two, which is sometimes total removal of the clitoris, the labia minora. They pull the skin together and they, they stitch it up up to like halfway. So, um, so going back um, to to type two again, every time I talk about the types, please remember that it could be still different. 
depending on who is doing the cutting and what part of the world the women are come from. So type two is uh, sometimes a partial or total removal of the female uh, clitoris, labia minora and labia majora. Then what they do is that they pull the skin together and they stitch it halfway. So if woman goes to a doctor to be examined and stuff like that, a vagina is half open, so they can actually examine her, but it might be um, if she has a smear test to really think about what kind of size of speculum that you will use or if um, sometimes it's small, sometimes it's medium. And then there is type 3, which is total removal of the clitoris, the labia minora, labia majora. They pull the skin together and they stitch it all the way down where there is no, the opening is no bigger than a matchstick. So you can imagine how the how small that hole is. If that woman goes for examination, anything, there's no way, no doctor can do any examination or any nurse can do some, some test. Then we have type four. Now, type four is the one that a lot of people are having a lot of conversation about it, especially in the Western world. The reason being is type four is one of those types that... Um, now it's been discussed a lot in the Western world because anybody who have anything done to their vagina, so you know, labia minora, labia majora, either is for beauty or for a cultural reasons, it is still female genital mutilation. And the reason being is that the, there is part of the vagina that is being removed for non-medical reasons as long as it is non-medical reasons it is fgm now the different is here in the uk i'll give you an example if you go to harley street they do labiaplastine right they do what's called um which is what's called a vagina designer uh we know that a lot of women have that we know especially a lot of women who are in the porn industry yes. do have that now the double standard of that is if I now go with my white friend to have labiaplastine and they will do it on my white friend, but for me, they will say to me, oh, no, no, it's FGM, so we can't do that to you. Um, it is against the law. So just because the fact that I am a black woman and mm -hmm. I am come from a practicing community of FGM, is I cannot have that. Yes. Um, which is Which is like mind-blowing um yes if you are over the age of age 18 you want it whatever you wanted to do to your body and i'm not saying 18 because they were 18 years old who don't have the same mentality for another 18 year old right so yeah. and for me is if you are adult <laughs> oh god if you are an adult and you decide to change your body for whatever the reason is, that is your decision. That is what you will do. The problem I have with, uh, oh, that's what you wanted to do to your body, right? That is your decision. Now, the problem I have with Harley Street is, one is a double standard. And secondly, what are we teaching our younger children? What are we teaching the girls who are growing up in this world, in this country, who have access to labiaplastic who have access to vagina designer who are saying i don't like how i look i'm going to do that and they go and do it so for me is that how do we protect our youth I... without exposing to all of these things 
I think that comes from that porn, is- though, because they see a vagina, like vaginas on porn and how perfect they look. And some of them, like you said, have gone through this designer vagina, vaginoplasty, labiaplasty, um, to, as they would say, neaten up their labia, outer, outer labia menorah, whatever it is. Um, yeah. And it's... It gives young girls this impression that your vagina is supposed to be a uniform type of way, no hair, you know, it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be neat, tight and tucked when all vaginas are different. And I just feel like it's a negative representation and it's 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 really bad for young girls who who think that they they're not normal or that they look different instead of understanding and embracing their bodies. Why can't we show healthy normal range of vaginas because it's really important to talk about a a woman's biological um biology and to have the words to use that it is is i mean i don't even know how we can especially in, in here in the uk call we are one of the richest places in the world and you know we have access to uh, children have access to this but we're not really protecting children what you just say now is so true and if you look at it there are like a couple of different things we for somebody who works in schools, for somebody who works with boys and girls, our boys and girls are as vulnerable as each other. This is what the first thing I want the listeners to really understand. Yes, there's a lot more things happening to us women and girls, but our boys are just as vulnerable because when I go to schools and I'm talking about safeguarding and we discuss everything because I always say that one hour I'm with you, that is your safe space. And I have the data backing me up. So in Ealing, example, we have... um, the health improvement team, they do anonymous data for children who are year four, year five, and year six. And they discuss, they will ask, like, when was the last time they watched porn? When was the last time they smoked? And it was, and when you look at the boys, especially year six, so year six is like 12 year old. So they just getting ready to go to year seven, which is the first year in secondary school. You will not believe how many boys that said they watched or is still watching porn? They are so, and this is one thing we have in London as well, because I don't work at the bars of the UK, at the cities in the UK, so I don't know, but I'm guessing all these children have access to internet. Um, and that is the thing we have. Now, watching porn, what comes with it is that they think what they're doing in the porn movie is okay to do it to girls. Yes. They think it, they think it's okay to have whatever rough, you know, position, yeah. um, sex. So that is one problem. The, the other thing is they think the, the way the woman body looks is how every girl and every woman should look like. So the way her breasts look, which is being done, the way her vagina looks, which is had labiaplasty, yeah. the way her stomach looks, which she had, you know, a tummy tuck, the way her and hips and her backside looks. This is the problem. It's not just the sexual and watching the porn. It's what comes with it. And our children are watching this and they have access for non-stop access 24 hours. And they now think in the normal world, this is how it is. And that goes with gaming as well. 
So, and, and I mean, we could talk about all of this in like, you know, until the cow comes home, but this is the problem we have. So when we talk about FGM, we have to talk about all the other things surrounding our children in order even for them when they are become an adult, when they become to our age, how to say no to those things. Yes. How to say my body belongs to me. The way I look and the way I made is just perfect for me. You have to teach that from very young age, and that talk have to start from primary school. That is why I left the NHS, and that is why I took to work in primary school, which is an amazing work because the children, when you put questions to them, they come up with the answers, they come up with the solution. So we, as an adult, need to listen and give them safe space to talk about it. And the other thing we need to do, and our government need to come and support. I do this work. This The work I do in primary schools is, is safeguarding, right? So I talk about internet safety. I talk about PSHE, which and sex, um, a relationship and sex education. We talk about, and this is for the community and the parents before we even talk to the children, because it's important the parents to know what their children are learning at school. So I set up series of parent workshops to actually duplicate the same parent, same lessons that I'm going to do with the children so I can have that discussion with their parents. We talk When we talk about internet safety, we talk about gaming, addiction to gaming. The, the, what the children are, the people they're talking to, they are children who play games and they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of followers. They keep playing games, but they never met. As I was going to say, it's completely different to, I'd say, like when I was kind of growing up because I was just on the border of like MySpace and and Facebook and that type of thing. But I think what you're saying is true because I did do some research and 62% of 11 to 14 year olds have viewed porn. And I I do agree with you. I think it teaches kids what they think sex is and men don't understand that women need pleasure too. And they think it's like from porn, it's easy to, you know, activate a woman's erogenous zones and to make her have an orgasm, which is not true. And they also don't understand that vaginas have hair on them. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And this is what I'm saying about... um, what, when they're watching, when the boys as young as 11, as young as 10, that's what they see, like, woman body should look like. And it's not the right representation of women, and it's not the right rep- representation of education for children. Because boys and girls, are, we, are, we are all born, we don't know when we were born, um, um, you know, like... As, as an adult, so you learn what you see. You're learning parents are important, community and is important as well. So we need to make sure we're teaching our children the right things so they can make the decisions when these kind of things are presented to them. Because the reality is and, um, internet is forever going to be here. Internet, this is how I explain internet to children as well. Internet is like driving a car. If you don't know how to drive a car, you're going to crash, right? But if you know how to drive a car, it's an amazing tool. You can use it all in the right way. It's very easier to minimize your risk. But if you don't know how, an internet is just like that. Internet is an amazing tool, but you need to know and learn how to actually navigate through it. And our children don't know that. You can't just give them iPad 
and and computers and just let them navigate it. You've got to sit down and talk to them. This is true. Had in your work because I I do believe this is like I can just imagine it being a thing being black myself. But from what you've said and from what I've I've seen with research. Um, because the girls that are coming through, especially in Britain, are black and Asian, it's not really, I don't want to say taken seriously, but do you think that if it was white women that were having FGM done on them, it would have been taken more seriously and there would have been a lot more uh, public activism and a wider platform for, for women speaking out to talk about it? Oh my God, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'll give you an example. So I came to this country when I was just two months before my twenty-first birthday. Now I'm a survivor of FGM. I'm somebody who's been in hospital ever since I was eleven years old. So eleven to seventeen, I was in hospital because my period was just accumulating. It would not come out. Uh, so I had gynecology since I was 11. Now I arrived in Sheffield with, you know, to come and join my family. And it was like everywhere I go, the first doctor I met just say, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is me just explain having urine infection and having a translator because I couldn't even speak English. Now, that was the beginning of my journey in the UK. But as I got older and as I, you know, I went to nursing and I work in hospitals, I work people in privately. And, you know, I will ask, especially when I was working in the sexual health clinic, we had women that to be sent here at the age of 50, 60, who wasn't sexually active for years. And because they had FGM and they were having urine infection and all those things, the complications come with it. The doctors were GPs, which are saying, oh, you've got abdominal problem. You need to have swabs and urine They never asked them, like, do you have FGM? And that was because doctors, nurses, Teachers were never provided the training and the knowledge they needed because it was seen as the black girl issue. It was only, it happens only in Africa. It only happens to black girls. And then later on, as the data came out, it was like only black and Asian girls it happened to. So imagine if that happened to white girls in this country. And if you look, actually, the, the, there's a documentary I sent you called The Cruel Cart, yes. which is the one of the first first um, documentaries I've been involved, actually owning it and, and showing my face and not being shamed anymore. And what they were, there's, um, there's an interview Leila is doing with... Um, the barrister, and you can hear, she said, yeah, if this was happening to white girls, it would be outraged. It would be outraged in this country that it would never have gone through it and been going for the same years that it's been going. So yes, it was for a very long time. Our own government, our own ministers will say, it's someone else's problem, it's someone else's culture, so we can't get involved because it's their culture. Now, if your culture is something that can kill you and it's an abusive, then there have to be a way to protect children. 
So yes, answering to your question, if this was happening to white girls, it would have stopped a long time ago. But what we know now, and having the data, is it happens to white girls, it happens to black girls, it happens to Asian girls, it can happen to any woman around the world. FGM does not have a color. FGM is not an African girl issue. Every FGM is not because um, a practice that is started in Africa. No, FGM happens all around the world. Yes, we have nearly. 30 countries in Africa alone that practice FGM, but the last couple of data we have 70 million women who came out from Malaysia, Indonesia. We have women who came out in, in Russia. We have women in America. If you Google in American and FGM, 1948, blonde girl, blonde hair and blue eyes has gone through FGM type 3. So it's about time. We, we and Everybody who think FGM is, is the black girl need to wake up because it does not start in the African country. It is, we still do not know where it started, but we know it happens all around the world. And that is why we survivors, even though, yes, we are, majority of us are from Africa, we are owning our body and we are owning our stories to tell the world it's not just us. We have to be fair because when they actually concentrating on us and saying the only African girls, what are we doing for the rest of the women around the world who are suffering the same way we are suffering? Because you said it doesn't happen to them, you're not going to give them a support and help and safe space to speak. That's why we decided to speak and we decided to own a story as well. Because a lot of people used to talk about social media um, or even a media, excuse me. <coughs> we have one of the biggest news platforms in the UK who will only fight white women who never experience FGM, who never spend a day or a time with a black woman who are survivors with FGM and decided to talk for us, to decided to talk about our bodies and how it is our culture. We are children who have been taken their innocence away. Yes, it was, it's a cultural acceptance and my culture is beautiful. My culture is about the food I eat, it's the clothes I wear, it's the songs I, I sing, it's the way I dance, it's the language I speak. My culture is not harmful. And this is saying that, I wish I knew who say this, it says that cultural acceptance does not mean accepting the unacceptable. And FGM is unacceptable. So it's, it's about time to, to, to open your eyes. It's about time to know that it could be the woman next door to you. It could be the girl that's got the, <laughs> the blue eyes, honey, and the blonde hair that who's next door to you, who's got type 3 FGM or even type 4 FGM and who needs to somebody to speak to. So that's where we stand and that's why we decided to speak up. May I ask you when you what age were you um what what age did you undergo FGM and when did you realize what had happened to you and how did you feel I know it's a very sensitive question but I just want the oh listeners to understand mm. No thank you um, I was 7 years 7 years old um we were born in Hagesa. My dad was head of the army. My mom was a businesswoman. They were both at, both educated. My mom was from Djibouti, which is, was French colonized. My dad was from Mogadishu, which is the Italian colonized. 
they met in Somaliland, Hargeisa, which is the British colonized. As you can see, like how many different cultures we have mixed into our thing as well. So my father was educated and he ended up going to an Italian in boarding school and when he was 18 he won a scholarship when um to be trained as an um an engineer and, and an kind of army as well in russia he make my mom he makes sure my mom not to cut us and this is one thing as well um a lot of people say oh it's always for the man the man who says it it happens for the man because they're doing it the girl cannot get married and have friends if she's not cut but that that doesn't mean necessarily her dad or her brothers wants it it's just and this is why we need man to speak up but um my father made my father make it blatantly to my mom and said do not touch my girls don't cut them don't do it he left as an army man and he traveled a lot and mom decided to cut us when i was seven and my younger sister was six now because when we go to school we were asked hold on when is your turn when are you gonna be cut i will run home come to my mom and say mom when am i going to have good name now good name is the somali word for fgm and when you translate actually good name is circumcision and Earlier on, in when we were talking, I did say our term- terminology is very important. We use the word FGM, which is female genital mutilation here in the UK. We speak in English, but all other countries, they call it different things. There are people who call it cutting, the people who call it circumcision. There's, there's so many different names. So that's why it was important to use the terminology. But for us, when we're writing it down, we have to write FGM because that's the law we are working under. Um, so yeah, I was cut at seven. The thing is as well, um, we had the biggest party. So the day before you were cut, you have a big party. And I remember getting so much gifts. And then the next morning, the cutter comes. Now this cutter was the famous woman who cut everyone in that area. And she cut my sister because we are three of us. I got three, two sisters and four brothers. So me and my younger sister are the youngest one. And my sister is the oldest. And then we have four brothers in the, in, in, in between us. So my, she cut my sister. So this woman, when she came to us, she was already an older woman. And but anyway, I was excited. I didn't know what I was excited about because I never knew what was in store for me. Um, but she came and she just told me, "Listen, your younger sister is gonna go in first. You got to be strong. You make sure you don't cry. You're not scared. You're not crying. You know, just be strong." And I remember for that moment at the age of seven, I actually become a woman for my sister. My sister went through it and. We were lucky as well because a lot of children, they cut them away. They take them away from home. They, um, you know, they keep a lot of girls together so they can be cut. And again, it's about what you can afford the cut up. Our family was okay. You know, we wasn't rich, but they had money. So that's why me and my sister were cut at home. Now we had... This is the crazy stuff. We actually had local anesthetic. So this cutter, who's not a nurse, a doctor or midwife, she don't know nothing about the human body. She actually had the needle, the syringe and the medication. And for me, when it was my turn, I remember, I remember it was like, you know, when you go to the dentist and they're going to numb your gums. And mm-hmm. that's how I felt. I felt the needle going in. And, and after that, I just felt not the pain of the cutting, but what I felt was the, the, 
they pull and they tuck and, you know, they just like shake in your body. And after that, they, they tie your legs together because the reason they do that is that we had type three. If you had type three, type two, any stitches, they will tie your legs together because as a child, you want to run around, you want to play, you want to ride your bike. So they're stopping you to walk properly, to take a big step. Because if you take a big step, if you run, the stitch comes out, she comes up, and the cutter will come back and she will do it again. So they're actually doing this to to um, to actually stopping you going through again. So it's, it sounds, it's like caring, but at the same time as an adult thinking about why it's the first place you go through is, is crazy. Um, yeah, so for me, I never had problem from that day. She cut us, she left. I remember about six hours into, no, actually two hours into the cutting. Um, I started feeling like burning. And that was because the anesthetic was coming out of our, our, our system uh, because it was the local anesthetic. So she just numbed the labia minora and labia majora, which is the big and the small lips outside of the vagina, which she already cut away anyway. Um, the pain was so... Oh, I can't explain. Like the way I did it in, in Cruel Cut when I did it, it was like somebody pouring a hot oil into your forearm. Because that's the part of that is so sensitive in our hands as well, our mm. arms. Um, and that was now looking back as a nurse and, you know, as a professional. If you, is when you give painkillers, you know, when somebody have surgery in the UK, when you come out of surgery, they give you painkillers so you don't feel the pain. Yes. That's what it was. I felt the pain. But it was like, it's okay. You know, everybody was saying, it's okay. Oh, this is normal. It's normal to feel. It's all right. Um, but it wasn't normal because at, even if we were cut, at least they could have done was to make sure we didn't feel the pain when that was coming out. Now, my little sister kind of went into shock because what happens that all the family, all the neighborhood, because it's beautiful houses, it's open, you have gardens, everybody meets outside. So all of our friends would say, make sure you go to the toilet. If you don't pee, you're going to die. So I know they were helping us. <laughs> These are friends that were the same age as us. Yeah. This is what I'm saying. We need to protect children from certain things. And it was like they will come. So my little sister actually shut down to the end where she didn't pee for 24 hours and she was started getting sick. Um, but she ended up having, you know, passing urine and getting better. We both healed. Two weeks later, we were okay. We went back to normal. We went back to school and everybody was like so proud of us, like the teachers, the, 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 the other children. Now we were clean. Now they can play with us. And then a year after the civil war started, we left there. About three years later, we end up, well, we, after the civil war in Somali, in North Somalia, we went to Mogadishu where my dad friend, which is the, the, the capital, we settled, we started school again. And then the civil war started again there about three years later. So this is 1991. And I just started getting sick. I got sick and after a lot of 
you know, whatever my father can do to take us to the hospital. It was only one hospital that was open, Italian in doctors, Somali nurses. He took me there after many different little GP doctors that we went and nobody knew what was wrong with me. But these doctors give me an ultrasound and they were like, she's got a cyst, it's growing, we need to operate her. And anyway, after again, a couple of weeks, because remember, we're still going through a civil war. So like some days you can't make it to the hospital because of the bombing and the shooting and all of that. But anyway, at the end, I ended up going to that hospital. Um, they operated me and it's only when they operated me, they realized I actually, it was my period that was accumulating inside. So it wasn't um, because I had a cyst, it's that I had my period. This time I'm 11 years old, so I don't even know when my period started. So that's how my my journey in hospital started. We had I had operation. They every time tell me to wait for my next cycle. It will never happen. And I didn't know what cycle was because what they mean cycle was you're going to have your period next month. So you're going to stay in the hospital for the four or three weeks and wait. I waited, nothing happened, but we had to leave Morticia now in that hospital because the, the war, the hospital got bombed. And I remember having stitches on my stomach. My dad found a tiny little plane in the middle of nowhere. And there's not even, there wasn't even a seat available but we had those in african city we call it gumbert i don't know how to explain it in english but i had that i sat in right in the middle of um the aisle and it was only an hour from an hour and a half i think from audition to djibouti and i went straight into djibouti my dad couldn't come so my my mom and my sisters and brothers who left me in Mogadishu because the war, when it happened, everybody had to leave. But I was so sick, I couldn't go with them. So by this time, they 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 migrated kind of way within their own country. And, you know, after many weeks and months, they ended up going to the island where my mom and my grandma was from, which is in Djibouti, French colonized, no war. And yeah, I was taken to the um, airport, the hospital already, they got it ready, a bed for me because it was the same. They had the same hospital from Somalia. The one I was operated in Somalia, they had the same one in Djibouti. I was operated there and I, every week there was, every month they would say, wait for your, you know, cycle, nothing happened. And then just, they decided they would send me and my dad to Italy, arrived in Italy when I was 16 and I had stayed in the hospital for about a year and then at the end of the year they operated me and when they operated me it was because my dad is speaking in italian and he had a diary and everything i remember my operation i went into the theater for six o'clock i mean seven o'clock in the morning i never came out until nine in the evening and then they say wait for your cycle and i remember the morning i woke up i woke up and there was blood everywhere in my bed i woke up and i was like I'm dying. I don't know what's going on. I called the nurse. She was speaking Italian. I don't speak Italian, but we kind of let, we kind of, you know, by talking to each other by hand, we understood each other. And she just looked at me and she was like, Hoda, you just had your period. So after that, many operations, many, many operations, three different countries, two different continents, I had my first period when I was 17. And yeah, and the rest was history. I, me and my dad couldn't go back to Somalia. We became a refugee in the in Europe, so we went to Holland. My dad left 
uh, left me in Holland. In I was in refugee camp. He went to Denmark in order to, you know, because now this time we didn't even know if my mom, my sisters, my brothers, anybody was alive. No, my sister, because my big sister this time was in the UK already with her kids. So, yeah, so after that, I ended up in refugee camp and I ended up being sponsored the refugee camp in Holland to the UK by my big sister. I arrived here. And in Sheffield, went to learn English. I couldn't speak a word of English. I don't. You would think like, how am I doing interview with you today? But that was many, many years ago. And yeah, I went to. But at the end, I was still feeling sick. I used to get a lot of urine infection, even though I was okay. Um, and you know, and that is when I started talking to doctors, and nobody knew what FGM was. And still, I moved to London. We moved to London in two thousand and one. And I met my husband, and my husband is born in London. His parents are from Barbados in the Caribbean. He don't know anything about FGM. And just as the week I met him, I got sick. I was like, you need to take me to hospital, because he was the only person I knew who knew the area to take me to the hospital. Um, yeah, and again, we've been together for, um, we've been together for now, 20 years. 20, 20 years, 21, I think, because we met 2001. <laughs> um, yeah, and we got married to 2006 and we couldn't get pregnant. So I went back to the, you know, the only place I knew, which was gynecologist. And the gynecologist said to me, Hoda, you had all these operations. You have what they call adhesions because medical term adhesions are like scars that you default. Um, so because I had four operations abdominally and countless one um, inside, my, just to open my vagina inside, just to make my period to come out, it affected all of my organs inside. So it was hard for me to get pregnant and they offered me IVF. And, and this was crazy again. It was like, for me, I really, really didn't want it to be in a hospital. It was like, I just want to run away from it. Because that is all I know, you know, when I was younger. And I wasn't that girl who could go and play with her girlfriends or go to the cinema with her friends, you know. So anyway, when they offer IVF, it took me a year to say yes. My husband was like, baby, I'm here. I'm going to support you. And it was very hard, by the way, to explain to him what FGM was. Because when you meet somebody, FGM happens to control women's sexuality. That's why. It is to show your future husband you are virgin. Now, I met a man who don't know anything. And he's like, why did anybody want to do that to you to keep you virgin? Like, you know, so it was really, for me, it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because those girls, it's like they check um, their virginity because... When you are, when you have FGM, they don't, uh, they don't let you go to the hospital to be reopened. It's your husband to, to um, enforce on you. Now, they, even the men get medical problems because they're forcing themselves on a woman who is shut, yeah. closed down. <laughs> that must cause a so lot of tearing then. Oh, yes. Yes. If you look at the medical connection with women who died because of either childbirth or when they got married, it's a lot of women get third degree tears. They don't have any medical, like, you know, antibiotics, anything to, to, to protect them from infections. Sometimes they have fistula, uh, which is when the, the vagina and the rectum are open because it's only a tiny little, um, 
and she dies between, you know, tiny little skin. Mm-hmm. And the man gets third degree cut. But the thing is, if they if they take the woman to hospital, is they're not real man. So you can understand as well the pressure from both sides, from community, because mm. the man have to perform he's a man with a vagina that's been shut, that's not natural, it's not normal, and but they have to perform that. So that is the that is 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 mind blowing. But after um yeah, and that's one of the things as well I do when I do my teaching, I base everything on health for me because that's one thing I know. And and I always talk about the man as well go through pain. Maybe women, yes, go through pain from the moment she's cut from the rest of her life. But and men go through pain as well for unnecessary pain. That is the problem. Um, but going back to the last bit of my journey when it comes to the doctors was I was offered IVF and I said a year later, okay, we... You know, I was injecting myself. I was having a nose spray. So the medi- you have to have to take medication for like two weeks. So your ex um, is basically is um, to make your ex fertilize properly to get bigger, to see how much ex they can get. But you have to go through. And I remember I didn't drop those trays. I would be going to the hospital to work 12 hour shift. And I would be doing my injections, which you have to do on your abdominal on the bus, or I will do no sprays on the bus. It was horrific. However, it was a journey. It was just, I never think it was hard. It was none of the thing I talked about today never affected me. But I tell you when it affected me. But none of that. I was just like, it just become normal. It just become life for me. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, so this is happening. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So when I was injecting myself in the bus, my abdominal, it was like, I never even thought about it. Good Looking back now, I'm like, Lord, have mercy. how the hell did I do that? Um. But anyway, the day the day came. They say harder. We have six embryos. So this is when they, you know, they got the eggs out. They actually got tough eggs out of me. But there was only five that that was really good enough to to be fertilized. Then they mixed my husband's sperm and everything, and they said we have six embryos. However, because you had operations, because you have all these gynecology problems, we don't want you to have twins. It was a risk. So we yeah. will only transfer one embryo. I was like, listen, I'm I'm okay. Do whatever. I always looked at it tomorrow's another day. If I survive FGM as a young girl and I survive civil war in two different countries in Somalia and hospitals in three different countries, two different continents, I was like, girl, I'm like I'm a survivor. I'm like, I'm, I'm survived. There's nothing going to stop me. So for me, I, that's the attitude that I had. Every news I had bad, it was, I always looked at it positive. Somehow I did. I don't know how I did it. It was just, I was, I think I was just in a, in a, in a surviving mode. So anyway, the day of the transfer, they transferred, they told us what to do, go home and, you know, rest and blah, blah. And, you know, do pregnancy tests in two weeks time. 
then I did. And it was Sunday. I did the pregnancy test. It was positive. I was like, what? I couldn't believe it. I looked at my husband. I said, like, really? I mean, do you think it's really it's real? I called my other friend, one of the nurses who was a sister in our ward who had IVF. I was like, do you think this is real? She's like, yes. I still didn't trust her. I sent my husband to the pharmacy. This is Sunday. So there's only one pharmacy that was open in our area. He went, he got more pregnancy tests. Everything was positive. And you know what? Within literally a couple of days of having that, my whole body was changing. My my breast was growing. My face was looking different. I just felt different. Like just, I don't know if it was psychological. I don't know if it was physical. My whole body was changing. Anyway, I was still running for the... Um, you know, for the bus, you know, I make sure I'm one of those girls, like, I can't get out the house if I don't have my coffee. I wasn't drinking my coffee. I wasn't having one of my ciggies that I do in the morning. <laughs> it was, you know, of course, I, I, you know, I, I said it like that because not a lot of people knows that. But, you know, there's a lot of things I give up myself that actually that make me survive to go to my work, which is mainly my coffee in the morning. Like, I'm not a big coffee drinker, but my morning coffee, like, I kill somebody if I don't. And I sacrificed. But anyway, everything was beautiful until one day, the day before my first scan, I miscarried. And I didn't know what it was. And... I got sick. I was taken to A&E while I was wearing my uniform. My husband came. They transferred me to my other hospital that I was having. Anyway, I ended up going to intensive care unit. I miscarried. I, I, but the thing was when I felt sick and I really, really want, I, this is the thing as well. I know this is getting long, but one day I want me and you to do another podcast is, miscarriage is something that happens to women around the world people don't discuss people yes. don't talk about it my own doctors when they did the transfer because already the embryos was already two weeks old so by the time i'm four weeks like two weeks into the um, pre pregnancy it was four weeks pregnancy so when i had the miscarriage i actually had proper miscarriage which i was having contraction mm. no one told me like no one, no, the doctors who did the transfer, anybody said, just in case this happens, you might experience this. And I look back this now and it really breaks my heart because me and my husband were like in the house and I was in pain. My mother-in-law, God bless her soul, was alive this time. It was like they, she was crying because people thought I was dying. But, and we did it at home, but all by ourselves. But anyway, after that, I developed perfect infection, which going back to the adhesions. And I ended up in intensive care unit. I was in intensive care unit for a couple of days. I was in hospital or totally in six weeks. I am five for 11. I, uh, you know, about one. 0.880, I think, centimeters. I was 40 kilograms when I came out of hospital. It was like I was dead. Anyway, I, I was like, tomorrow's another day. I'm going to eat food. I'm going to get better. My body's going to grow. You know, I'm going to put weight on and I'm going to go back. And the day we decided after I got better, we're going back to, to have the transfer of the embryos. And that's when they told me, I'm sorry, this morning, none of the embryos survived. So they take this four embryos out and none of them survived so that's the day they told me Hoda we can't because I was like okay let me do another cycle of IVF and they were like nope you can't do that because if we touch you you can die your 
your, you know, we can't touch you. It's really hard to collect your own eggs. The options are either you adopt children or you have surrogate mother and egg donor. You know, it was a whole different world doors that was open that I didn't know about and I wasn't ready about it. Um, but yeah, we decided we're going to adopt and you know, that is, that, that was, that was the answer we came up. So I was 31 when all of this happened. I was 31 when they said, you cannot have your own child. Um, and then, yeah, and my husband, I love it because in there he was like, nope, my wife is not going to die for a child we don't have. So we just looked at each other. We were like, egg donor, surrogacy. It's like, it's, it's, it's too much. So we decided there's so many babies in the world. Who need mom and dad? So we're going to go for the adoption route, mm. which actually like five years ago we wanted to do. I lost my mom. Then three years later, we lost his mom and dad. So I kind of put it on hold. But um, yeah, I mean, that is that is what we came up at the end. If you're not death, <laughs> if you're not died, you are alive on this earth. There is always an uh, option. There's always a route you could take. There's always a door you can knock and open. And that is the journey that I decided to take. And with that, that comes with my activism work. It, because, and it came with making sure that I protect girls around the world and boys as well, because I have many ne- nephews. Um, and I've seen a lot of children, who, boys who've been neglected as well. But I think it's important in each and one of us to use our experience to change the things we don't like. You know, even if your experience was beautiful, still share it with the youth. You know, still show them, um, you know, you can do it and you can take those routes. You don't have to take the routes that can hurt you. And if you you know, like me, had obstacles in life, share it with the children so they know that is a route that can happen, but you don't have to take. Um, it's, it's, it's just, I think it's a duty as an adult, it's a duty as humans, it's a duty as communities, it's a duty as women and men, is we just have to share, share and, and provide safe space. You know, it, uh, 30, I turned 37 when I was told I was menopausal. So for me, my whole life was like from the beginning to the end. And again, menopausal was one of the hard, being menopause was one of the hardest thing I ever went through as a woman. Um, it was harder than me being in hospital in a war torn country. It was, it was harder than me being in refugee camps. It was harder than, and being in a hospital in a country, I don't speak the language it, because it affected every part of my body and my brain. Because when I was sick, my brain was working, my everything. Menopause, it shuts you down. It makes you tired. You can sleep for 12 hours and you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. You know, you, you get, you start getting a little temper because you just feel like the people don't understand. So life goes on, but nobody say it will get easier it's just you have to get the road to to make it easier for you and that's me are there um lots of women who are suffering from the long-term effects of fgm in the uk uh, yeah 
I mean, what I talked about, even for me, I'm one of those because for me, it's the long-term affection, uh, the effect that I had. But as a nurse and as a human, the woman I see in my community is they still... uh, We have a 40 or 50-year-old woman or even 30-year-old woman who are going through dialysis now because their kidneys has given up. Um, especially when you keep having urine infection with no mm. help and medical support, their kidneys are in, get infected. Because, um, you know, our kidneys is like a sieve is what keeps, you know, our body healthy and, you know, our, you, you know get the urine out, which is the toxic, keep what is good for our body. Uh, so, yeah, I have a lot of women who have been dialysis, waiting for kidney transfer. We have the countless millions and millions of women who are going um, who have a gynecology problems. We have women who have fistulas around the world. Um, you know, I mean, medical problem on FGM, there is really not one sheet or one PowerPoint you can put on. Um, yeah. And we're not even talking about the psychological. Mm. I read a study that said there was 24,000 girls at risk of FGM in the UK and that instead of them travelling abroad to get cut, that they have the cutters come to the UK now. What, who are the cutters and is there some sort of financial incentive and for them to, to, to keep, to keep practising this? Do they, have, you, have you ever spoken to, to one of these people? Do they realise what they're oh, doing? Oh, me and you both, how I wish I could talk to them. These people are undercover. Um, and it's not just now. This has been happening for many years. Mary Cottage has been invited into this country for many years. But now we don't even have to look away afar. There are doctors who came from practising communities who are doing this privately. So you don't have to actually fly cutters into the UK. You you can actually get a doctor here in the UK who could do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you will never meet them because they know, especially with us who are making noise. You know, yeah. our faces are known now because we said we're not having it. My body belongs to me and <laughs> my vagina is my vagina. I make fucking decision sorry about my language for, for what i no, want to do for, for my it. body nobody's gonna speak for me so no. with us who have a platform now they it would be hard for anybody to talk to us but they're here they are breathing under our neck and they are not the cutters that they used to bring in they are the health professionals who believe and they can perform fgm under the noses of the nhs as well so yeah it's about education, it's about opening your mind, and it's about knowing that when, if you ever come across what to do and who to, where do you get help? Who do you speak to? And that is the main thing, is that we need to provide a platform where anybody who's worried can come and talk to, because you might see something you don't like, right? Mm-hmm. You might be a woman who went to the doctors and the doctor might be offering you this because they claim for, but, and you are worried. You are worried for your daughters. You're worried for your, you know, your younger nieces and, and, but who do you go and talk to? This is why we need to provide safe spaces where women and girls and even boys can come and speak without feeling they're going to be ostracized, without feeling they can, you know, be making to feel guilty. People wanted to talk because now, thank God, like I said, we have the internet, which could be good or could be bad. 
But we can share our stories, we can share our knowledge, and we can share our voices. And that's what we need. We need safe spaces for so people can speak up. Why do so many people believe it's a, rigid, uh, a religious practice when it's not? What are the excuses that you've heard that people give? Oh, so, okay. So, you know, in the olden days, right? Yeah. That a lot of women, including my mother, they actually thought it was religion reasons. Like, when I say religion reasons, I'm not talking about how we see the world now. A lot of people are actually learning what is written on the books. Yeah. In my country, yes, we Muslim people, we pray, we eat. You know, we, our way of life was being Muslim. Yeah. But our culture was Somali. So our women wear their own clothes. We were very colorful. We were dera. We were sheet. We have shalmad. You know, it was tradition. And, but women was so like when my, I remember only my mom, because I can't speak for anybody else. My mom said, I thought this was a religion application because that is how we were taught when we were young girls, right? Yeah. Because FGM happened to my mom. It happened to my grandmother. It happened to all the women before me. I'm, I'm, I'm talking going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years ago. But they believe it was the religion. Now, who was, who was explaining these religion books? They were a man. Mm. They were not a one woman who learned this. So they just believe what the man said. And the man said, you have to do this to your daughters. And it was because of religion reasons. And that's why it took, it, it was all, well, anyway, for now, that has been mixed with the religion and culture. So now that people, even with my mom, got a light Rahman before she passed away, will always say to me, hold on, forgive me. Like, I didn't know this. I really thought it was religion. I really thought it was the word Sunnah, which is like, you know, living how the Prophet Muhammad lived and stuff. And it's only learning herself the Quran herself about the religion, she realized none of this was allowed. So it was that it was again, it goes back to education. Women didn't know about the Quran or the Bible or the Torah, all those, you know, um, and religion books, they didn't read it. It was just a translation to a man. And again, FGM is for man. It's FGM is to control women's sexuality, to prove your future husband that you are virgin. So that is why it was taken into a um, religion. And when what you just said about um, it being to, to please a man and to suppress a woman's sexuality, that's the main reason that I wanted to talk about FGM because hearing that pissed me off. It really <laughs> made me angry because I just thought how, like I can feel my blood like boiling now. I thought how barbaric <laughs> that you're gonna suppress, like, I was watching um, one of the documentaries that you sent me and yeah. one of the, the men said, because obviously FGM is a very, it's kind of a taboo topic. Like certain people don't actually know what goes on. So they actually think it's a good thing. And one of the guys was saying that it calms a woman down and all of these types of things. What can men do now to get involved in this conversation to prevent it? Because it needs to be completely eradicated and stopped. I know. I sometimes feel like I've been doing this for nearly 15 years now. And I feel like always saying, this is what man can do. It just is, it's, it's, it's even beyond me that we have to say that man knows this is wrong. Yeah. 
Men have daughters, they have sisters, they have mothers, right? It affects them in every way. But the fact that they actually separated themselves, and you can see, I think you're talking about the cruel cut. Yeah. Um, when Layla invites the boys, you see, these are British Somali boys. These are British boys who grow up and born here. Right? Yeah. But because they believe ment- mentally, that's what their community wants and the culturally is why they are taking it. They don't know what, what it entails. They don't know what is taken away from women and girls. But they just know it said, oh, to be a man, your women have to be caught. And you see that part of the cruel cut when Layla takes them and shows them the wall of vaginas. Did you see how they can't even look at it? They're so shy. They can't even look at it. And the fact they don't think vagina have come so many different looks, just as we human beings are. Just look at our faces, look at our body, look at our color, look at our hair texture. We, none, not one of us is the same as the other. Our, our private part is the same. Man's penis is the same. Woman's vagina is the fucking same. It's, it's nothing different, right? So the fact that boys and men think that the certain way women's vagina should look is one problem because even their penis is not the same they should just use their own body to see to see the difference as well right but they're not being brought up like that they didn't make them to think and to learn they were just made out oh you are a boy and you're gonna become a man and you don't have to ask these questions so that was one when when the boys at the the cruel car Layla was showing them but the point the one I want everyone to see. Have you seen what Layla actually practiced showing them the types on lab- uh, yes, on, on, on the, the plastic, the big vagina plasticine? Yes. And the thing was, the first one, it was only type two she was showing them. Mm. And one of the boys said, I feel dizzy. Remember, this was this was a plasticine. Like, it's, it's a plastic. This is not even real. And... He said, I felt dizzy. Now imagine girls go through type one, which is the the one we were talking about, to all the way to type three and type four. And he felt sick for type one. And this is why education is so important because boys and men need to know where it's been taken away from women. Mm. The part of my body is cut away, it's never going to come back. Right? But it's like it's if somebody cut your testicles, if somebody cut your the shaft of your penis, how would you fucking feel? So it's educating them, not just taking oh so and so say, my ancestors say I got to take what they say. Mm. It's about it's about time we need to fucking wake up. But education is the key. I will go back to that. I, I agree with that. Um, what was I going to say? Remember Layla chasing mm. down Theresa May in, I think it was Maidenstone or Maidenhead. I get those two confused. Yeah, it was Maidenhead. It's when we had the open top bus and we had two of our colleagues wearing the vagina costumes. And that was because 
the scene before that, that Leila wrote to Theresa May and she was the Home Secretary and it was just to discuss the law, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't to attack, but it was really to discuss to see why are we still here? Yeah. Why are we still trying to protect children from harmful practices, white, black or yellow? It doesn't matter, right? And yes, our agenda was talk about FGM, but we were still talking about children everywhere around the world. And she didn't have the decency to meet us. She was a woman. You know, she was a woman in a high position who can make a difference, you know, and she wasn't willing to do that. So we decided to get the open top bus. <laughs> what I love about Leila and the team that was doing the video and that was the directors, it were amazing because everybody was in the same pay. So yeah, it was it was easier to really go to her office and but still while she was a coward, I will never take that back because she never came out to talk to us. We rally around outside her office. Every car walked past was peeping because they agree what we were doing. And she was a coward where she went at the back of the office and got into her car. So that is why for me, I am like politician, you are who you are and I am who I am. So yeah. let is I take my gloves off. Like I'm really, really fucking ready for all of them. Seriously. I know Even that. now, we have the Home Secretary, who her parents are from East Africa, original Indian, right? Yeah. And she's talking about, and this is me, not FGM, talking about as a refugee. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and it's blocking and it's stopping children to actually get a better life. Mm. Like, and you are a woman? I, you know, I'm not even talking, I'm not even using um, agenda, but I think as a human being, you have a fucking duty of care. Don't take the job if you cannot do the job. And I think pretty Patel, that's what she's doing as well. How can you let children stay in a border or die in water because you don't want them to come to the country? It's not yeah. even your fucking country. So, yeah, that's my rant for that. But, I, I yeah, refugee part of it is another talk. Don't get me started on Preeti Patel, please, because I'll be here all day. All day. I know that you you're wanted the... to send a child a couple of years ago. I wrote a letter to the Home Secretary and a child was going to be sent back because they didn't have paper. Yeah. And this child was actually at risk of being cut and the mother was bleeding. I'm going to send you that letter. I'm going to send you the tweet. And it's still nothing happened. They just give you a political answer, which mm. is, we are looking into this. Please, um, we appreciate your comment. We appreciate we're going to have to look into this. Please, it will take a couple of weeks. Wait for us. Child sometimes don't have that. Yeah. They tell us we have to wait for weeks to even get an answer, which is yes or no. And you doing that to children? No, no. I think it, we, we, there's a lot we need to do in this country. This, we think we are where, yes, we are a lot better place, but we're not fucking nowhere near we need to when we have to protect children if they're refugee or if they are at risk of FGM. It's just unacceptable. It's a major safeguarding issue and I understand what it's like when you're contacting MPs and it, it like they'll just drag their feet with an issue. And I think when it comes to children, that's not something, especially when they're at risk of harm and abuse, because I do feel like 
FGM is a form of child abuse. And I know that could be quite strong, me saying that. It is a child. No, it's a child abuse. It is. FGM is a child abuse. And I always say, like, my mother didn't do it to abuse me. Yeah. But it's the whole society was abusing me. The whole country was abusing. One day they made it, it was normal to cut girls' clitoris. So it's not, it might not be your immediate family who's doing the best for you. Because my mama did it for so we can go to school and we can make friends and our whole family can be part of that society, part of that community. Why is there such a stigma where it's like you're not clean if you haven't had this done? And it's like you're kind of... It was written. It was written for women is clitoris was dirty. Women, like you saw on that video, the boys that was British, it still was made. If the girl had clitoris not cut, she's going to sleep around. He actually said it. This was his own words. And remember, he said, if the girl did not have FGM, I was told she's like a supermarket. Who, how dare you even Mm. talk about women? In any way, like a supermarket, anybody can walk in and out. So you saying she's like a prostitute. If she's not caught, she can have sex with everyone and whoever she wants. Like she can't control herself. Yeah. And that was a child that was a teenager. That voice you seen, they were the, the younger generation. They the youth, they the future generation who's supposed to be helping to end this. And they were made believe that. That's why we need to all speak. I agree with that. The conversation definitely needs to be opened up more. I saw on, um, I think it was Vavengers, your, yeah. which you're co-founder the of. The Avengers, yes, sorry. The Avengers, um, that you're a co-founder of, that you've been doing events. But I obviously understand with the pandemic that that's something that's had to come to a hold. But have you got anything mm-hmm. in the works? Uh, not yet, but we're definitely going to do. And that's one of the things really different friends do even exist. We do events um, uh, where normally even I, that we showcase like young artists around London, you know, that who give them the platform, but at the same time helping us to spread the word. So we had some nice events. So, you know, it's like a softer, softer sound night. Yeah. So you have poetry and you have music and you might end up just sitting on the floor. So we used to get really amazing events. Our first ever event was in Amy Winehouse, old house in Camden. Um, and then we have a lot of our events now happening in Hackney. But yes, because of the lockdown, we wasn't able to do anything. But watch this space. I'll always keep, um, you know, follow us on Instagram and our websites and at the Avengers website as well. Um, so yeah, it will be coming back. It will be coming. Um, but right now, we just need to see where we are at. But I'm sure by the end of the summer, we will know a little bit more. Have you got any educational sources, uh, documentaries or articles um, that you could you could just shout out for people to kind of take a look at so they could learn more? Just think because how I see it is the person you're sitting next to on the tube could be a victim of FGM. The person you walk past, your colleague, your friend, as you said, your next door neighbour. So I feel yeah. like it's really important that we do talk about a woman's biology and we understand it and that we don't shy away from vaginas so how can people learn about what what are the educational resources where people can go and learn about fgm 
how to say God. I can't God, believe I'm saying this, even though we're in 2021. It's really not one place now we have that you could just go and access all the information. But the bright side of it is that just following like individual and, and seeing. So like um, I would say, because we I write a lot of um, blogs and a lot of uh, experiences. Like I wrote about refugees and I, I wrote about when I went to Senegal. So now all of those are like individual places. So if you do follow me, which is my in Hoda M Ali, which is I'm sure you're gonna put the links there yes. anyway, um, you will find a lot of things. And it's what's important: follow those charities. It's small charity; they're not funded. They're doing this work from their heart. But there's a lot of information. So, like the Avengers is one of them. So that is the one I co-founded. Then you have Dalia Project. Dalia Project was set up by Leila Hussein. I'm gonna make sure that. We we have all these links underneath the podcast so everybody can get an access there. So we have Dahlia Project, which is the only clinic whole of Europe providing psychological help to women. Um, it's not funded by charity, by government. It's actually funded by the goodness of humans, you know, people yeah. who wants to give to make sure that women and girls can be, you know, have a space they can talk. Um, we have the other charities as well. So in the Orchid Project, which is so Orchid Project, like the Orchid Flower Project, that's another charity as well. They do amazing work in in the UK, working with survivors. They work in all around Africa and they were the one that who sent me to Senegal to do like 10, 10 day training, but being able to actually go and see a villages who stopped cutting their girls like 15 years ago. And it was an amazing thing for me to see because I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. A practicing community in Africa in a village will be able to stop that. And it was amazing. So that's Orchid Project. We have all of these, but social media is a main amazing thing. So follow Hoda Ali, follow Leila Hussein, follow in the Orchid, the Avengers, Mabel Evans. A lot of information is there. The other thing as well, when you need an NHS help, please go to NHS England because we do have a lot of um, information there as well and data from the NHS. And the other thing is we do have FGM clinics in the UK and especially we had more about three, I think it was three years ago, we have about more uh, clinics that was commissioned by the N NHS. So we have a lot of clinics in London. If you need to see FGM clinic, you don't need to be referred for any doctors. You can just walk in. I live northwest London. So the nearest one to me is Queen Charlotte. It's called the Sunflower Clinic run by Juliet, who is a midwife, a trained midwife who do the de-inflation surgeries as well. We have another clinic in, in Harrow, which is in Harrow, um, Northwick Park. So there is a lot of help. There's a lot of support. But on all of that, there's a lot and a lot of information out there. And a lot of survivors who really are speaking up and writing about their accounts and what they think. So it's really good to see both. Follow the, the government, like the NHS websites, but follow the survivors as well. So you can actually get the, the right information right there and then. And I might forget something. I'm sorry. I will definitely remind you more. But um, yeah, there's a lot of information out there.
Thank you for listening. Please tune in next week, Monday, for a new guest and a new exciting topic. Feel free to check out more of my content at ebbyonline.com.